0: What a joy it is to sing his praises and to hear the voice of the saints shouting to the rooftops the goodness of our God. If you would, open your Bibles again with me this morning to Hebrews and chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As you turn there, one of the byproducts of living life in a fallen world is that we're all in search of security. Many install security systems in their homes We check that our banks are FDIC insured before we put our money there. Banks, on the flip side, ensure that that you have a cosigner or some sort of collateral in order for them to give you a loan to make sure their investment is secure. We seek security in our relationships. This is one of the reasons that the biblical view of marriage is important. Before you join your life with someone, you ought to commit in a formal covenant of marriage. It provides a foundation and security for that relationship. We even look to the security of those we love by making sure we have things like life insurance or a will in the event that the Lord takes us home, that they will still be cared for and secure. But the point is that this pursuit of security really touches every facet of human life. But as much as we like the sense of security, we have to admit that we're often faced with the fact that there are many things that are simply outside of our control. There are areas in which we struggle to find real, lasting security. And I think the area in which human beings struggle to find security the most is not when it comes to their outward circumstance, but the inner man, the soul, the security of the soul. As Christians, we are those who have placed our faith and our trust, our confidence in Christ. He is our ultimate security. But if we're honest, many times when we enter into a season of trial or temptation and we feel that we're being beaten against like the waves of a storm, our security begins to waver. It puts our faith to the test. And so the question that we face this morning in Hebrews chapter 6 is how can we as Christians ensure that we remain immovable and steadfast in our faith throughout the storms of life. It's with that in mind that the author of Hebrews calls us to take courage. Because Christians have a salvation that is secured to a degree that's beyond our wildest imaginations. And in order to remain steadfast and assured in our salvation in the midst of trials and in the midst of temptation... We have to constantly remind ourselves of where our hope really lies. You remember the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. We've looked at that from many angles. For some time now, we've been discussing the fact that the priesthood of Christ is superior to that of the the priesthood of Aaron. We're in this long section from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 7, and we're In the third component of that larger section, a call to trust God's promise. You remember we've come out of this warning, and from that warning passage now, we are encouraged to to trust the promise of God, and the author is now bridging the gap between that warning that he gave us and the primary subject matter of the priesthood of Christ. He's bringing us back to this theme of the priesthood of our Savior. Let's read our passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Our verses this morning are 19 and 20, but for the sake of context, let's begin in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope. Set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The theme that we began to unpack last week and will continue on this morning is this. We are called to wait patiently for God's promised salvation, secured by Christ our high priest. Wait patiently for God's promised salvation, secured by Christ our high priest. We've been looking at three elements that the author unpacks in these verses. We saw the first two of those elements last week, and we will look at the third this morning. But don't forget that in verses 11 and 12, which led right into our passage, The author was calling us to to hold on to our assurance of hope by putting off spiritual laziness and instead putting on imitation. He's calling us to imitate the lives of faithful believers. And specifically last week, he highlighted one example of that in the person of Abraham. Abraham is a faithful believer that we're to imitate. In the first element in these verses, verses 13 to 15, we saw Abraham's example were to observe his example God made a promise to Abraham and Abraham obtained that promise by faith we saw in Genesis 22 the context behind this passage that Abraham's faith was tested when he was called to sacrifice his own son the son of promise and yet God delivered his son from death and and in that way Abraham received the promise again of his son as this promised son through whom Christ would eventually come Then in element number two, we were called to imitate Abraham's faith. We were told about the oaths of men, that men take oaths in order to bring more confidence to the statements they make. In the same way, in order to bring confidence to us, God has made an oath. He has sworn, and he has sworn to keep his promise, not only to Abraham, which that promise has been kept in the sense that that promised son has come, Jesus Christ, and we have hope in him. But he's also made a promise to us who are heirs of that promise that that son, that promised one, Jesus Christ, would then be exalted to the right hand of the Father and would serve forever as our high priest. God doubled down, if you will, on his own character because God cannot lie by making the promise and then swearing to keep the promise it doubles the intensity of that effect. And just as God's character cannot change, His promise cannot change. And so with that context in mind then, really this morning, element number three is the application of that. What do we do with that? What is the author calling us to do as we look at this example of Abraham? And element number three is this, cling to hope. Cling to hope. He's gonna give us two reasons why we can be confident and why we can reach out and take hold of the hope set before us to cling to this hope. And reason number one is this, this hope is our anchor. This hope is our anchor. Look back at the text, verse 19, Hebrews six nineteen. He begins, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now, we have to begin by just defining what this hope is. When he says that we're to take hold of this hope and that we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, what is this hope? Well, in context, the hope is that of eternal salvation, that we will be eternally saved. Hebrews 6, 9, remember, introduced this concept, but beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you, the things that accompany salvation. Then moving from there, he's, he was confident that they are true believers because they've seen the fruit of that faith in their lives. And he tells them to continue on showing that fruit, demonstrating that fruit in verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And then... Last week, he ended by calling us to reach out and take hold of that hope, that hope of eternal salvation, verses 17 to 18, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we, who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us as we get to chapter 11 we will see that that the things we hope for are tied to the definition of biblical faith the vision uh, hebrews 11:1 now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen and the Christian's hope is that of salvation. It has been promised to us, those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saved by grace and because of what Christ has done in us, we have this hope, this confidence that God will see it through to the end. That we will indeed be truly and fully saved and glorified and brought to be with him forever forever. And that is our firm expectation, even though now, in our temporal circumstance, we've not yet received the fullness of that salvation. We have received a down payment, if you will, uh, or or Ephesians, rather, speaks of of that as the seal in the Holy Spirit. We're given the Holy Spirit. It seals our redemption. We've been guaranteed that the rest of that payment will come. We're, We're experiencing some of the fruits of that salvation, but the finality... Of our salvation is yet to come but our hope of salvation includes many things it includes an eternal inheritance it includes a citizenship in God's own kingdom in which we look forward to being his sons and his daughters and so we live then in this world as those who are sojourners just passing through our our citizenship here is temporary but that citizenship that we long for will be eternal and it is that hope of eternal salvation which Christ has secured that the author wants us to rest assured of here when he says this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. But notice, this is not just a, a, a thought that we're to think on and meditate on, but he says, I want you to reach out and take hold of it. I want you to cling to this hope. And the first reason that we can do that and cling to this hope is because this hope we have, he says, As an anchor of the soul. Now, this is a a simple and yet profound truth that ought to alter our lives. We must cling to the hope of eternal salvation because God intends for it to serve as the anchor of our souls. Now, the word soul here likely refers to the whole of the inner man, our inner being. Silva defines it this way, soul is the, the whole inner life with its faculties of will, reason, disposition, and emotion. It's, it's the real you on the inside, that part of you that, that is eternal, the soul that will go to be with God waiting for our resurrected eternal body one day to be joined with it. So when you think about it then, if, if this hope is the anchor of our soul, then this is the most valuable anchor that we have in life. This is our security that goes beyond every other form of security that we could ever imagine. You know, there are many people in the world who have done all that they can. They, they've done as good as a human can do to secure every aspect of their physical lives, but yet they live their life in a constant state of turmoil, fear, worry, and emotional upheaval on the inside. And that's because while you may be able to do some, some things temporarily to secure your circumstance, you cannot secure your soul. We don't have the means in and of ourselves to do that. That immaterial part of us, it goes beyond the reach of human security. It can only be secured by God. And what the author is saying here is that if you're a Christian, then you have that security. This hope is that security. And this illustration of an anchor, we can't allow that to go over our heads. This is such a beautiful picture of what this hope does for us. Because this is a picture of a boat on the open ocean facing an oncoming ferocious storm. And the only way that that boat is going to survive that storm is if the captain of the boat drops anchor. And that anchor then sinks through the ocean waves until it hits the ocean floor and sinks deeply into that soft sand, securing the boat in place as it's tossed and and turned on the surface of the ocean. But understand that the the anchor does more than just hold the boat in one place. Because what an anchor does is it, it, it places that boat at the proper angle in relationship to the oncoming storm so that the the nose of that boat points into the waves so that it rides over atop the waves instead of being turned sideways and capsized and destroyed so the anchor does both it, it holds the boat in place and it puts the boat in the proper position to survive the storm that's why the author will say that this hope for us is sure and steadfast look back at verse 19 he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Now here, the words sure and steadfast are, are synonyms. They're, they're really emphasizing the same idea that this anchor has sunk deep into the ocean bottom and there's no pulling it out. It is sure, it is steadfast. In fact, if you think about the illustration further, in and, and a real boat, in a real storm, the more severe the storm, the, the stronger the waves, the stronger the wind, the more it drives that boat back, which only pushes the anchor deeper and deeper into the sand of the ocean bottom. That pressure of the storm causes the anchor to go deeper. And so it is that this hope for the Christian soul is immovable. It is sure, it is steadfast. And in context, the, the meaning of this becomes clear because last time, remember, we talked about the fact that in chapter 10, the author hints at the fact that these Christians are going through a difficult time, a severe time of persecution. Some of them have been imprisoned for their faith. Some of them have lost their personal possessions, their homes, and their things have been seized and taken from them. They're undergoing a difficult trial. And we know now at, at this point in Hebrews that some of these Christians are getting weary it's getting long, and, and because of that, they're becoming spiritually apathetic. They're beginning to take their eyes off of Christ and onto their circumstance, and it's affecting their spiritual lives, and they're in danger. And so what the author is doing here is he's coming around them to remind them that as believers in Jesus Christ, they have an anchor for their souls, and so do we. And that anchor will never let go of the bottom of the ocean, but it will continue to drive deeper and deeper into the ocean floor as that storm increases, only becoming stronger and stronger and more reliable. The author calls them again to set their face to the proper place to turn their eyes to Christ, the author of their salvation. And only when their eyes are fixed upon him and and the, the truth of that salvation that awaits them, can they imitate Abraham and others like him who have waited with patience in the midst of life's storms. God has not promised to remove the pain of their trial, but he has promised that he will preserve them through it and that he will bring them safely home to glory. Now this is a good reminder for us this morning Christians as we think about persevering through the trials and temptations that God brings into our life and it's a reminder that if we want to to walk through those trials in the way that God intends for us to do then we have to make sure that we're relying upon the correct anchor because so many times Christians become disillusioned, disheartened, and depressed when they face the trials and temptations of life And that disillusionment then leads to weariness. The weariness leads to spiritual apathy, which leads to losing the battle with sin, which leads to a lack of assurance. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're there this morning. And far too often, the reason that we get into this place of apathy and lack of assurance and discouragement is because we realize in the face of difficulty that we are relying on the wrong anchor. There are counterfeit anchors that all of us are tempted to put our trust in. What are some of those? We're just going to list several on the screen here for you this morning. I, I just came up with a few you could add to the list. Counterfeit anchors that we are tempted to put our trust in health, wealth, marriage, friendships, ease, comfort, a stress free life, man made plans, our reputation, our success. Our physical appearance, the behavior, obedience, and or success of our children, pleasure, and the list goes on and on. But these are counterfeit anchors that, that tempt us as if they're worthy of our trust and our hope and our joy in the midst of the trials of life. And what we have to understand is that God in his kindness has given to us many good temporal gifts. He's very good to us. And these gifts are meant to be enjoyed. We, we've looked at this in Ecclesiastes. We're to enjoy the gifts that God gives in this temporal life. But those gifts are to foster gratitude and love for the giver, primarily, not the gift over the giver. But in our, our sinful flesh, we're tempted to put our hope in these temporal gifts and to treat them as if they are the real anchors of our lives And when we do that, we turn God's good gifts into idols. But these good temporal gifts, like the rest of creation, were always only ever intended to point us back to the magnificence of the one who gave them. Listen, marriage and children are wonderful gifts to be enjoyed, but they make terrible anchors for your life. Likewise, God may give you finances and health to steward and enjoy, but they too make terrible anchors. God has given us many good pleasures that are morally right to enjoy in this life, like good food and rest in the proper proportions, and even intimacy in marriage, but these too make terrible anchors for your life. And so, how do you know? if you have fallen into the trap of turning one of God's good temporal gifts into an anchor for your hope, well, you know by answering this question. How do you respond when that gift is threatened, doesn't meet expectations, or is taken away? When we're willing to justify sin in our hearts because a temporal gift is removed or doesn't meet our expectations, then we can be confident that that gift has become an idol in our heart. Now don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that we don't properly and biblically grieve the loss of precious gifts Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. Paul gives instruction to the Thessalonians Thessalonians and how they're to grieve believers who have passed away. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Notice he doesn't say, so that you will not grieve. He says, so that you will not grieve like unbelievers, and so, of course, we, it's right in the proper sense to grieve the loss of God's temporal good gifts, but it's always wrong to place our hope in those gifts. And here's how you can be confident that you're placing your faith in the right anchor and not the wrong anchor. Because just as a storm only causes the anchor to sink deeper into the bottom of the ocean, becoming more sure and steadfast, the trials of life are to cause the believer to cling more and more to their love and hope and faith in Christ. And so if you notice, Christian, that as the the waves get stronger and the temptations get stronger and the trials get stronger, that you're grasping tighter and tighter to Christ and the promise of your eternal salvation rather than to the things of the world, then you know you're trusting in the right anchor. God often removes or tampers with some of our favorite temporal gifts in life just to cause us to be reoriented and remember that he and he alone is the only stable anchor of our life. As I thought about this, there are some common dangers that I, I think is important to mention, dangers that, that are blatant temptations thrown at us to take our eyes off of Christ and salvation as our anchor to trust in other things. I think one of the reasons that so many Christians across the world are struggling today with weak and shallow faith is because of the deadly influence of the prosperity gospel And unfortunately, the influence of these dangerous doctrines has been so widespread that even if you don't claim to believe those things, we can unknowingly and unwittingly adopt the language and the thought process that comes with these dangerous doctrines. The prosperity gospel actually promises that by putting your faith in Christ, you get all the other things on the list that we just listed. So that the, the motivation then for coming to Christ becomes not Christ in and of himself alone, but Christ plus the life that I've wanted. The American dream will be mine in and through faith in Christ. Add to that another danger of, that's been introduced through, primarily through charismatic theology and a Christianized version of mysticism in the church Mysticism has been detrimental to the faith of, of thousands, if not millions, and I'm, I'm not on a soapbox here. I genuinely believe that this is a danger to our souls that takes our eyes off of the anchor that is given to us here in, in Hebrews, because Christian mysticism teaches us that we're to be expecting God to speak divine revelation directly to us. And that the goal of the Christian life is to discern these personal words from God, and then as we discern those personal words from God, that's how we grow in our faith and our sanctification. Christian mysticism calls us to go out to a quiet place and to wait patiently until we hear a private word from God spoken directly to us. And the dangerous thing is if you sit there and wait long enough, you will hear something, somehow that your mind will convince you is the voice of God. And then this movement says, take that word that you supposedly heard in your mind from God and believe it as firmly as you do the other promises that are written on the pages of Scripture. And as a result, what happens is Christians are, are dropping anchors all over the place and supposed promises that they heard whispered in their ears from God and they're holding on to these promises and when they don't pan out, they lose their faith. They wonder, God, where are you? Did I not have enough faith? Did I not believe strongly enough? Because they've been told to believe in counterfeit promises. Others don't go as far as to say that they've received a word from God, but what they do instead is they they get their heart set on a particular outcome from their circumstance that they think would be best for them. And then they believe that that because God is good, he will surely bring about the, the end result that they have decided would be the best result for their life. But when we do that, we fail to remember that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God only ever does what is perfect and right every time. But he, unlike us, knows all things. And therefore, he sees the details of life that are kept from our view. And so, though it may seem on the surface that that something is happening to us that is not the best plan, in God's perfect wisdom, it is. With that in mind, we have to make sure that we don't drop false anchors all around our boat, holding on to, to end circumstances that we think would be right Instead, while it's it's okay and we're told to cast our anxieties on the Lord and to come and to pray to the Lord and to ask God for things, we are to submit those things as Christ demonstrated for us at the feet of God by saying, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. Understand that if you are here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that God loves you and he has spoken to you God does speak to us today, right here, in and through the pages of Scripture. If you want to know the promises of God for your life, open the book and read. These are the promises of God. These are the anchors of our soul, Christian. And then what the Holy Spirit does is help us understand the Word and apply the Word to our individual lives. But don't chase after your own personal revelations, chase after the revelation that God has inspired that he's given to us and put your faith here and here alone 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work So, resist any dangerous doctrine that teaches you to claim promises from God that are not on the inspired pages of Scripture. Because when we place our hope either in temporal gifts or in uninspired promises, we are tying our boats to anchors that will not hold in the storm. But we have an anchor, Christian. We have an anchor that will hold every single time. And that anchor is the fact that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to this earth and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he offered that life as a sacrifice to God to pay for our sins and then to be raised to new life on the third day. And not only that, but God then has brought him to his right hand. He's ascended to the Father and he's there even now serving as our great high priest, as our representative. And that, Christian, is an anchor that won't let go put your faith there and leave it there and that will guide you through the storm that will hold you through the storm and it will point your boat in the right direction so you may get wet you may get tossed to and fro in the waves but you will not be destroyed you will not be crushed this is the anchor If you're here this morning and you've never come to believe the gospel that I just explained, you've never come to put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope of your salvation, understanding that you're a sinner, that you cannot bring yourself to God, but you are totally reliant on God and what He has done through Jesus Christ, understand the Bible says if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll turn from your sin to Christ, putting your faith in Jesus alone as your only hope of salvation, then you will be saved And this anchor of eternal salvation will be your anchor that you can tie your boat to forever. That is the good news of the gospel. But if you're a true believer this morning, then make sure that you don't try to add other counterfeit anchors to the anchor that is the eternal hope of salvation. And that's because this hope that we're called to cling to is not only our anchor, but secondly, there's another reason that we can cling to this hope, and it is the fact that this hope is in heaven. This hope is in heaven. Look back at the text, verses 19 to 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. One which enters within the veil. Now, this is powerful imagery. Every Jewish person in the audience would have known exactly what veil was being mentioned here because this is is not just any veil. This is a reference to the holy place, the holy of holies, the veil that separated the holy of holies, the place where, where God's physical presence was manifested in a unique way during the old covenant. This was the holy of holies, the place that only the high priest had the privilege to enter, and he only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But as we're going to see in coming chapters, the author of Hebrews is going to argue that that earthly temple was really just a symbol of a heavenly temple, that the earthly things were just a shadow of a heavenly existence. And here, this veil that's mentioned, is this imagery, is to point us to the holy place, but not the holy place under the old covenant in the physical temple, but it's a reference to the very presence of God himself. This is heaven. This is Christ entering behind the veil into the very presence of the Father. This is why our hope is so secure. Our hope has entered within the veil. And what that means, think about this. Think of the the anchor illustration and the veil illustration and understand that what the author is saying is that you as a Christian have a firm hope of salvation because your anchor is not buried in the mud on the bottom of the ocean floor. Your anchor has been cast to the sand of the floor of heaven itself. It is anchored behind the veil, Christian. You have an anchor for your soul that is in heaven, and it cannot be moved. That's why the author says it is sure and it is steadfast. It is deeper in the sand of heaven than you can ever imagine. Is this not what Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 when he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither nor rust destro- moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hope is in heaven behind the veil, which means it's not susceptible to any temporal earthly power. It's not susceptible to the, the decay and the corruption of this fallen world. And so the question then is, what could be more secure than that? Where else would you want to put your anchor than behind the veil of heaven in the very presence of God himself? But you might ask, well, how can we be be confident that our anchor has been dropped there on heaven's shores? Well, it's because of the one who placed it there. Look back at the text, verse 19. We have this, this hope sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil, verse 20, where Jesus has entered. Where Jesus has entered. The eternal hope of our salvation rests in the person of Jesus Christ. So our assurance finds its foundation in the perfect work that Christ has accomplished for us, but also in the fact that Christ, having accomplished that, has gone to heaven. And if our hope is in Him, then our hope too is in heaven. That's how we have confidence that our anchor is there. We have been baptized into Christ. We are his, and he is there, and he's taken our hope with him. With this, the author's beginning to turn our eyes slowly again back to the priesthood of Christ. He'll come back to that fully in chapter 7, but he's, he's turning our gaze there again. Remember in chapter 5, the author started to tell us about the importance of the priesthood of Christ, but he said, I have to take a time out because you're not ready your ears aren't ready to hear this yet, and you'll miss the significance of it. But now that he's awakened us from our spiritual slumber over the last several weeks, now our ears are ready again to hear, and he begins to tell us some of the significance of the priesthood of Christ as it relates to this hope that we have. And part of that significance is what's said here, that Christ as our representative has already gone behind the veil. Therefore, our hope has entered behind the veil. Just as the people of Israel would gather around and stand and watch the high priest as he alone entered into the Holy of Holies, knowing that he's there representing us, he's making atonement in there for our sins, we as Christians spiritually gather around and we watch as our Savior goes behind the veil into the very presence of God as our representative. But what I want you to see here in this text is that this is not just about representation. It goes beyond just representation. Because it says here in verse 20 that this is where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. As a forerunner for us. You know, when the Israelites would gather around and watch the high priest go into the Holy of Holies, they never had any imagination that they would ever go in. He was the one that went in. And they relied on him to go and represent them. But what this text is saying is that we will not forever be here knowing that Jesus is there, that Jesus goes into that place not to just be the first one, but the word forerunner means to blaze a trail for others to follow. The point here is that Jesus went as a forerunner to to pave the path for you and I to go and be behind the veil in the very presence of God in heaven itself. That is our hope. He's not only taken our hope and planted it deep in the soil of heaven, but he himself has made the road clear and says, one day you will come by the same path that I have come because I am your forerunner into this place. Is this not how he comforted his disciples on that night in the upper room in John 14 when he said, do not let your heart be troubled? Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Don't you see why we must cling to the right anchor? and why we can have confidence that this anchor will hold. It's because Christ has taken it behind the veil, and in so doing, we're connected to that rope, and he says, you're going to come up this rope one day and be where your anchor is, because I'm the one who has secured it as your forerunner. As it turns out, for the Christian, the security of our souls, which is the kind of security that all sinful man longs for, is... Is actually the most secure thing about us if you're in Christ your soul is more secure than your family it is more secure than your health it is certainly more secure than your retirement plan it's more secure than than politics and your vote and and whoever you may desire to be in that position it's it's more more solid than anything in this life that you can imagine and it finds its security in the one who now stands behind the veil who has entered there as our forerunner. What an anchor for our souls. This is meant for your temporal encouragement. This eternal truth is to affect our temporal lives as we depend on this anchor. Why would we trade that hope for anything else? This is why Martin Luther would would, would pin those famous words, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. And what is that truth? His kingdom is forever. Let him take it all. Let him take my life even because I am banking my life here on this truth and that is that I'm part of his kingdom and that kingdom goes on forever. Do you believe that, Christian? then what temporal trial could ever possibly shake your love, your faith, your trust in the God who has given you such a steadfast hope? It's this ministry of Christ in heaven that the author will turn his attention to as he talks about the priesthood of Christ. He's, he's wetting our appetite for why this matters so much. As it turns out, Christ's priestly ministry is is part of the foundation of our hope. It secures our hope that what he accomplished here will be applied to us in eternity. And he goes on to state that clearly now at the end of the verse, where he says that Christ has not only entered as a forerunner, but he's entered having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a reminder of the, the quote from Psalm 110 that started this whole discussion. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice the emphasis here is the word forever. That's the part that he wants us to understand here. That is our, our hope. That You know, the, the priesthood under Aaron constantly had to have this line of succession because the priest died. And so somebody else had to take his place, and somebody else took his place. The uniqueness here about Christ is he stands as our high priest forever. And he does that, it says, because he does it not through the line of Aaron, but through the line of another man named Melchizedek. And as we will discover as we get into chapter 7, it is because he comes through that priestly line that this is an eternal priesthood that we can take, take to the bank. Remember now in context, this emphasis on the fact that Christ is our high priest forever ties back into the main idea of us clinging to this hope. You cling to it not only because it is secured now, because it's secured forever. It will never change. Just as God's character cannot change, his promise cannot change, and Christ cannot change. God's word will not fail, and Christ will not fail. That is the sum of our hope. Christian, you can rest assured that if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he will preserve you through this life, and he will bring you safely into the next, and you will be with him forever just as he promised. And then we will know what the famous song says, that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. That is our hope. And so as we close, I just want to turn our attention to one truth. I want to call us all to examine the placement of our anchor. Examine the placement of your anchor this morning. Let me ask, have you found yourself disillusioned, disheartened, and spiritually depressed as of late it may be that that's coming from the the fact that you've been trusting more than you know you should on some counterfeit anchor and something in your temporal circumstance has caused you to now realize that that counterfeit anchor you know it's not actually very steady and it's not going to hold through the storm as we said temporal gifts make terrible anchors In fact, when we make any temporal thing an object of our hope, it will quickly cease to bring the joy that God intended in the first place. Because God will never allow us as a believer to stay in a place in which we value His gifts more than we value Him. Let me ask you a couple of questions Does your countenance rise and fall with the stock market? Does your anxiety rise and fall with the success or failure of your schedule or your plans? Does your contentment rise and fall with how prioritized you feel by a spouse or by a friend? Does your joy rise and fall with the obedience or success of your children? Does your sense of security rise and fall with the doctor's report? If you're being beaten and torn by the wind and the waves of trial and temptation, take heart this morning and reach out and take hold of the anchor, Christian. The true anchor. See the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your mind to the one who stands behind the veil and see him shining there in all of his glory and understands that if he is there, then you know the promise is secure that you too one day will be there. And you take hold of that rope and you pull tight on that anchor and your feet will stand in the midst of the storm. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to know. In this life, Christ promised us trouble. He promised us persecution. He promised not to shield us from the reality that we will succumb to death. But our hope is not in this life. Our hope is there in the life to come. And so as we hold the rope connected to the anchor of Christ, it is in this way that we imitate the faith of Abraham and others like him. And it's how we wait with patience and faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning that far too often we get distracted by other temporal good things. Things that you legitimately have given to us to enjoy and mean for us to enjoy. But we, we so easily turn them into Idols, We turn them into things that have more of a hold on us than they should, that have more of our affection than they should. God, thank you for reminding us this morning that the only anchor that you have given that holds is the promise that we find contained in the Scripture that you are a redeeming God and that you have offered forgiveness of sins and eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. And this eternal life is totally and completely secure for for all who run to Christ for refuge in repentance and faith. God, help us to let go of every other rope connected to every other anchor and to only hold fast to the anchor you have given, which is far more than enough, the anchor of our hope in your precious Son. It is in his name we pray. Amen.